0: You will open your Bibles to Job chapter 36. Please stand with me for, in honor of the reading of God's word. Job chapter 36. Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker, for truly my words are not false, one who is perfectly knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them there forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction... Then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, and that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instructions and commands that they return from iniquity, and if they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping, and what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress, or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who is prescribed for him his way, or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill with his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It crashes; It's crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Chapter 37. And this also my heart trembles, at this my heart also trembles, and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice, and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice. He does not not restrain the lightning when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From his chamber comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for his love, he causes it to happen. You can have a seat. Father, forgive us for thinking wrongly about you. We're elevating ourselves to a place that we should never try to attain. Father, outside of you regenerating our hearts, we can't know you. Lord, That is truth, and the truth is is that even after regeneration, Lord, we have to rely on You to show Yourself to us. And I pray, Lord, that through Your Word being spoken and preached, Lord, and through the illumination of Your Holy Spirit, that we would come to see You as our mighty God, our amazing Savior, That we would come to know you better, Lord, today, because of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is our flyover of the book of Job. And today's sermon, like the book of Job itself, is going to center on suffering. Going to ask four questions What is the purpose of suffering? How can we suffer well? How can we comfort well? And finally, what is the answer to suffering? Today's per, uh, verses are part of the conclusion of the book of Job. And in them, we find Elihu responding to the four older men who had been arguing with each other. On one side of the argument was Job, a man who had just had everything of value taken from him, a man who had lost all of his children in one single moment. And then a man who had been afflicted from head to toe with painful, oozing sores. On the other side of the argument were his three friends who came to comfort him, who all agreed that this tragedy that befell Job could have been avoided if Job had just not sinned, who also agreed that if Job would just admit his sin, repent of his sin, then God would then bless him once again. Elihu had sat listening to the debate raised between these men until it just kind of fizzled out. And then in chapter 32, we hear this, the verses 1 through 5. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachi, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God, and he burned in anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that these three men, but there was no answer in their mouth, he burned with anger. Now, we're told that Elihu burned with anger against these older men, the three friends, because of their theology, which was based on quid pro quo. Basically, you do this, and God has to do that. And he saw that it was insufficient to deal with the devastation which had befallen Job. They held that God would only inflict pain and suffering on people because of sin and no other reason. And his anger burned against Job, not because he held fast to his integrity, not because he was adamant that there was no hidden sin in his life. He burned with anger against him because Job justified himself and not God. Job had been right in his elevation of God over all creation. He was right in his worship of the omniscient holiness of God, but he was wrong in thinking that God owed him an explanation." This is how he justified himself and not God. And Elihu wasn't jumping in to settle the argument as who was right and who was wrong. He jumped into the fray for one reason only, because all of these men had spoken wrongly about God. The interesting thing about the five chapters that contain the monologue of Elihu is that most of it is um, directed not towards the wrong theology of the three men, but is directed at Job. Because he knew that the answer to the bad theology of these men was not a point-by-point commentary on why they were wrong. The way to correct their bad theology was through the rebuke of Job and justifying himself. This entire section of uh, Scripture today is all addressed to Job. We know that because the you that's is given is given in the singular form and not the plural. And the first four verses are given as a reason why Job should listen to Elihu. He said, bear with me, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. These statements make Elihu look pretty full of himself. But let's not forget that God never rebukes Elihu at all. Like he did, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Then, in verses five through fifteen, Elihu addresses God's retribution of the good and the bad. This isn't given as support to the claim that Job was sinning and that's why God um, struck him, but it was to remind God of, remind Job of God's sovereignty over his creation, to remind Job that God acts justly and rightly, and that it is merciful. And he's also trying to get Job to see himself and his affliction in his infliction in light of God, not just his circumstances. That's why he ends his thought with. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Just like Job, we will need a full and robust understanding of pain and suffering if we're ever to understand how God delivers the afflicted by their afflictions, and opens their ears by adversity. There's a theology that tells us that pain and suffering are nothing more than attacks from our enemy, or that they're just part of the human experience. There are those that will tell you that God works overtime in trying to prevent pain and suffering in our lives, or at least lessen their effects on us. These people hold up a God that is doing his best in achieving a life of ease for us, And these people will say that it is a mystery to them why God allows pain and suffering to occur in this life. They say that those things are not his will. After all, he's a God of love, of puppies and kittens and nice little things. But this God, or I'm sorry, but this makes God out to be a very small God indeed. This God has no power over pain this God cannot deliver the afflicted by their afflictions or, the, the or open their ears by adversity since he's trying his best to prevent us from going through pain and suffering. Nor can this theology answer sufficiently the most basic of questions in this life, the why of pain and suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on this subject called The Problem of Pain. It's a great book. But in that book, he never actually answers the why of suffering. He answers philosophically that it is not, um, that it makes no sense not to believe in God because of pain and suffering. But he never addresses why, the why of pain and suffering. The answer to that question, however, is found in Scripture. Genesis 1:31 says. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This was after the creation of the universe, the earth, everything in it, including man. It was all very good. There was no evil, there was no pain, and there was no suffering. That all changed, Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7 and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Romans 5.12 tells us that through this one act, sin entered the world and brought death with it, and both spread to all men. And the sad thing is that our sin did not just affect man. It also affected and infected everything within creation, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. At its base level, this is the answer to the why of pain and suffering. Sin. While that answers how pain and suffering came into the world, it doesn't address why God allows it to continue, and especially doesn't answer why he directs it upon his children, if in fact he does. Because it would seem to us that a good, all-powerful, all loving God would just get rid of pain and end all suffering. It also seemed logical uh, for God to transport to heaven every person who ever put their faith in Christ the moment that they were saved. Or it would seem logical for him just to end pain and suffering for those that put their faith in him. Think how great of an evangelical tool that would be. But instead of obliterating pain and suffering, Instead of using the lack of pain and suffering as proof of his seal on his sons, the Bible is clear. He not only allows and directs pain, he also promises it to us. Jesus said in John sixteen thirty-three, in this world you will have tribulation. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translate that verse this way. You will have suffering in this world. And it doesn't seem to us very loving to promise suffering, especially when you have the power to prevent it. And even more so when we find out that God is the instigator of it. In fact, in our way of thinking, that's abuse. We would say that any father who causes children pain and suffering should be locked up. That is until we define what pain and suffering are. For if parents were locked up and kids removed from homes just because the children felt any kind of pain or suffering or perceived pain and suffering, then all kids would be taken away and all parents would be locked up because all parents have brought pain and suffering on their kids, at least in their children's minds. We tell them, go to bed, eat your vegetables, do chores. I'm taking you to the doctor. And while these things are not to a logical adult mind, pain and suffering, or the cause of pain and suffering, for the immature, the childish, or the ill-formed. And they're thinking they are. Now, I'm not implying that that the pain of heartbreak or physical trauma isn't real. But what I am saying is that just like a child cannot fully understand why they must take medicine, get a shot, do chores, or go to bed, we too cannot fully comprehend why God would bring pain and suffering into our lives? What would be the purpose of that? Well, before we address the purpose of pain, we have to answer, is it theologically correct to blame God for the pain and suffering that we have in our lives? Are we wrong in saying that he is the unseen cause of these afflictions? Elihu addressed the pain and suffering in Job's life, beginning in verse 16, and lays responsibility that pain and suffering directly at the feet of the one who was responsible for it, God. He said, take care. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Elihu wasn't pulling this thinking out of thin air. He wasn't even telling Job something that he himself didn't know. For Job himself has said that it was God who had brought this tragedy upon him. First, when the the taking of all his possessions and the killing of his children in chapter 1. And then after he was afflicted in the flesh, he once again said it was from God in chapter 2. And finally, at the end of the book of Job, when he is being restored, even then it is God who is said to have brought these afflictions upon him. Job 42, verse 11. Okay. So God was the reason for Job's suffering. But that, does that apply to all of our suffering? First Chronicles 29 says of God, you rule over all. Psalm 115 says that God does all that he pleases. And in case that doesn't quite click yet, Jesus said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. So this answers the who behind our pain and suffering. But it doesn't answer the why of it. What is the purpose of pain and suffering? Is there a purpose in pain and suffering? Thankfully, we're not left without answers, for scripture tells us that there is at least three reasons for pain and suffering. The first is found in Hebrews 12, which tells us that there are times that God will use suffering as a rebuke for our sin and as a means for training us. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11 says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom God, who the Father does not discipline? All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering is also the tool that God uses to train us towards spiritual maturity. Romans 5, 1-5. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And third reason, suffering is an opportunity to glorify God through our faith. and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It was these last two reasons, at least, why Job suffered as he did. We in our sanitized, compartmentalized, and homogenized Christianity don't like pain and suffering. If we could, we would end all pain and suffering thinking that would be the best thing we could do for mankind. We have separated, at least in our thinking, pain, suffering, trial, and tribulation from God. We have forgotten that we are all, at our core, nothing more than sinners. And if, we truly, if we're ever truly to know the love of God, we must suffer well and be trained by it. This is the love of God for us. And this is where we can go wrong in our thinking about God. We get his love wrong. We think love means nice, easy, and pleasant. But that love is a fallacy. We must look to God to define love, since he is love. It is a basic Christian um, understanding that all creation is merely an overflow of the the love of the triune Godhead. And no Christian would deny that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That he proclaimed to Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what did the Father do with this Son? Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Father to crush him, to put him to grief. Yeah, but that's the God of the Old Testament. We're under a new dispensation now. That's the dispensation of law We're under the dispensation of grace, which has been ushered in by a kinder, gentler, more loving God. Not only is that bad theology, it's not even honest with the text of the New Testament. The book of John is a great place to go in dispelling this error, for in it, Jesus tells us that he came from heaven not to do his will, but the, the will of the Father who sent him. And he tells us that he and the Father are one. This is how the saints of the New Testament understood the love of God. They didn't have an aversion to pain and suffering. They didn't go looking for it, but they understood the benefits of being a child of God and that it was pain and suffering that had purchased their salvation. And what was their expectation concerning the benefits of this salvation purchased through Christ? James, the half-brother Jesus said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 3 and 4. Or we've got Paul, who said, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness that our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that he may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not comparable, or not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 12 through 18. Or how about Peter? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin as, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2. And he ends that thought with this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Verse 19. Hear how preachers through the ages have shared the truth of God's love, how they understood the benefits of this salvation and pain and suffering. Augustine said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never had one without suffering. John Calvin said, Whoever the Lord has adopted ought to prepare themselves for hard, toilsome, and unquiet living. C.H. Spurgeon said, When the pangs shoot through our body and ghastly death appears in view, people see the patience of the dying Christian. Our infirmities become the black velvet of which the diamond of God's love glitters all the more brightly. Thank God I can suffer. Thank God I can be made the object of shame and contempt. For in this way, God shall be glorified. Or how about A.W. Tozer? It is doubtful that God can bless any man greatly until he hurts him deeply. How about Joel Osteen? There's a belief that you're supposed to be poor and suffering and show your humility. I just don't see the Bible that way. I see God came and Jesus died so that we might live an abundant life and be a blessing to others. We, as blood-bought, spirit-filled children of God, should be ashamed of ourselves for allowing the spirit of this age to infect our minds to the point that we think pain and suffering are bad for us our current, our culture has an aversion to pain and suffering so much so that the goal of many people's lives is no longer to bring glory to god and enjoy him forever but to avoid pain and suffering at all cost we will literally direct everything we have, spend our last dime in the expectation that we deserve never to feel any pain or suffering. Our opulence, our possessions, our ease of life have all been allowed to pollute our understanding of God and his goodness and rob us of the blessing found through suffering Well, This has contributed greatly to the anemic state of the church in the West. We have lost the understanding of the benefits and blessings of pain and suffering. And because of this, many have failed to suffer well. There is a purpose to suffering. God used pain to purchase our salvation through the crushing of his son. He uses pain in enacting our salvation as the spirit regenerates our cold, dead hearts. It's the love of God that allows a sinner to see his sin against a holy God, allows the sinner... To feel pain and humiliation for those sins, which drives us to the only place we can go, to the real comfort, the only real comfort and joy that we can ever have, to the Son whom He crushed, to Jesus. That God is a person behind our pain is not popular, and in fact, it's scorned by those outside of the church, and even by plenty within. But be that as it may, it still stands as truth. And if you find yourself struggling with this truth, squirming a little bit on the inside, or perhaps just plain, plain angry by what I've said, then perhaps you should be concerned that at best you have a bad understanding of God. And at worst, you may be still an enemy of God. If you say that a God that would allow pain is not your God, and most certainly the God that would ordain it isn't, that the God that you know, the one that you love and worship, is a God of love, be warned, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. You have made up a God in your mind, a God that is like you. A God that you can understand, that you can manipulate, and that you can even rule over. You may call your God Jesus, but he certainly is not the Christ. You have not seen the truth of yourself in light of the majesty and awesome wonder of God. You think much too highly of yourself, of your loved ones, and of mankind in general. You think that people are good, that they deserve peace, happiness, security, ease of life. Nothing is further from the truth. What every human deserves is an eternity of endless suffering because of our treasonous rebellion against a holy God. A wrong understanding of pain and suffering ties directly into a wrong understanding of the nature and goodness of God. Even in the midst of his pain, even in the midst of his suffering, Job had a right understanding of the nature of God. For even in the midst of of the arguing with his friends, And in the midst of even justifying himself, he still had this to say about God. Where does wisdom come from? God understands the way of it. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning and the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Chapter 28, verses 20 through 28. And Elihu, in our verses today, had the same view of God. He said, who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man behold it from afar. Behold, God is great. We know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Verses 23 through 26. How then do we change our minds concerning pain and suffering? How do we acknowledge that while it's not fun, it is good? While it's painful, it is still from the loving hands of our Father and then submit in a manner that will bring glory to him and about the desired results that he has in mind for us. The natural man, when faced with pain and suffering, will more often than not turn inward, become selfish. They'll become bitter or angry and then even lash out at people. And even those that seem to suffer well and not complain and remain cheerful in the midst of suffering, outside of knowing Christ, they don't suffer well since they don't give God the glory for their suffering. We don't have the ability within ourselves to suffer well. So where do we learn to suffer well? How do we gain this ability? The ability to suffer well is a grace from God that is found in and through his comfort. That comfort comes from his word, illuminated by his spirit. This truth is told to us in 2 Corinthians. Paul tells us it is God who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And we comfort them with the affliction or with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. 2 Corinthians 1 4. It is only during suffering or through suffering that the Word of God becomes real to us. Those truths that we know in our head get drilled down to our heart. It's when we can own that's, this is the only time that we can own them as our own and know them to be true in ways that we could never have imagined before. Jesus tells us in John 14, verse 26, that he promises to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in his name, that he will teach us all things and bring to remembrance all that um, he has said to us. But the Spirit can't bring to remembrance those things which we have not put into our head. That's why we will need to take heed to his word, find the value in his word, and commit to memory his word. We don't have to worry about drilling it down into our heart now. The Lord's going to do that in the midst of our pain and suffering. It's then that we are given the privilege of doing real serious business with the Lord through prayer and supplication. Seeking the true comfort which only comes from Him. Asking for the grace to suffer well for His glory. And as children of God we can rest assured that this comfort and this grace will be given us. And it's this grace that will change our mind concerning this life and, most importantly, the nature of God. And we can know this because we have his word on it. Thanks be to God for the truth of his word. Throughout the Bible, we see men and women who suffered well. Throughout or from these lives, we learn that what we're suffering is not uncommon. It's not harsh punishment. That our sufferings, that through our sufferings, an eternal weight of glory is being prepared for us in heaven. That through our suffering, we are being conformed more into the image of our Savior. That our suffering is for our good. And that through suffering well, our lives will be an encouragement to others. A life worthy to emulate As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And we don't know all of of God's good purposes in suffering. Yet we do know that he uses our suffering to prepare us to comfort others. That means that we will often suffer, sometimes severely, for reasons that we don't know. Because we have not yet met the person who will one day be comforted by our story. Greater suffering requires greater comfort from God, which brings us closer to God and makes us greater comforters for others. We know that each one of us will suffer, and we will each day, or each one of us, be given the privilege someday of comforting someone else who is suffering. Romans 12.15 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So how do we comfort well? Well, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are great examples of how to comfort well, at least at first. At first, for a week, they sat in silence with their friend, weeping with him. They didn't try and give pithy condolences or use some little Christian cliche sayings. They just sat there and wept with him. The task of comforting someone who is dealing with deep personal and private pain isn't an easy one. And that person may say things that are hard for us to hear at that moment. That may even challenge us in thinking that maybe they're not saved. This is the time to remember, though, your own personal pain and suffering. And if you haven't had to deal with any real pain and suffering, then maybe the best thing to do is not to say anything at all. But what you shouldn't do is try and be the Holy Spirit to them. Allow him to be him. Instead, point them to Christ. Remind them of his majesty, his worth, and his beauty. This is what Elihu did beginning in verse 27 and goes all the way through verse 13 of the next chapter. Show them Christ. Remind them of the truth of God and then allow God to deal with his servant. This is what comforted Job. Job was dealing with real physical pain. He was dealing with personal loss and anguish over the death of his children. But what comforted him was not an end to his physical pain or the removal of the emotional sorrows. He wasn't comforted when his wealth and possessions were restored to him and he wasn't finally okay once his children were given him or uh, given him to replace the ones that were lost he was comforted when god revealed himself once again to a suffering saint he had known god previously had known about him only now because of his pain and suffering job was to see more clearly the value and worth of god god pointed to himself he reminded job of his majesty his power in creation, his sovereignty over creation—this is what caused Job to say, "I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I said, therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand; things too wonderful from me, which I don't know. I said, here and I will, and I are uh, here and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me." I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Saints, show them Christ. And suffering saint, look to Christ, who is the author and finisher of your faith. God may seem distant from you, but he's not he wants the best for you he desires for you to know him better in a more personal way as you pour your out your heart out to him in papal submission to his will we not only have the lives of the saints in the bible as proof of this we have chronicled for us a myriad of saints that have gone before us pick up a biography of one of the dear saints who has gone before us, and read about our amazing God. How he used pain and suffering in their lives to make them into the giants of the faith that they were. He is always faithful to them, and he will be no less faithful to you. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 8 tells us, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what then is the answer to the question of pain and suffering? Since God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and sovereign over all things, how do we answer, how could he be just and still allow or even command such a thing? The first answer to this question is found in chapter 40 of Job. Verses 7 through 14. God answers that question to Job by saying this. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and then abase them. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread him down, or tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge that you or that your own right hand can save you. Perhaps a bit clearer would be Romans 9:20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God, what is, what, um, well, what does molded say to his molder? What, uh, why have you made me like this? But you may answer back, saying that humans aren't clay. We're not inanimate objects. We are living, breathing, feeling entities that have a soul, and we can't be lumped into inanimate objects. The question I have to ask you then is, why do humans have a soul? Why do humans have value? That answer is found in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humans do have value. For this one reason alone, we are created by God in his image. But this doesn't mean that we are equal to God or can fully comprehend him something that he told us through his prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, he said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As redeemed people, we should come to terms with the fact that we cannot know the mind of Yahweh. We must say, as the prophet Isaiah did, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are the work of your hands. Saints, we don't like pain, and we don't like suffering. We don't enjoy financial hardships or heartbreaks, but we need to change our minds concerning pain and suffering. Let us think about pain and suffering in light of the goodness of God. Let us lean on God through his mercy and grace that he will give us to suffer well, knowing that this world is not our home and that he's preparing for us an eternal home. Let us be challenged by Paul to join him in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We cannot fully understand why there's pain and suffering, but we can be sure that there is a purpose of it. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 we have this treasure, the Holy Spirit, in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. knowing that he who has raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may um, increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Saints, there is a world of hurting, dying people who are enemies of God. These people have no hope in this life or the one to come which makes their obsession with having their best life, best life now make sense. But it's when the children of God suffer well. It's when in the midst of our severe pain and heartbreak that the suffering saint praises God. It's then that those who are an enemy of God are shaken to their core by the truth of the goodness in God in keeping us. It's then that our enemy and his minions are silenced in their lives concerning the value and worth of our Savior. It's then that the brothers are built up in their faith, can find comfort in their own affliction. It is then that we will see the glory of God in a greater way, and it is then that God receives the greatest glory due his name through our life. We cannot know the mind of God, and we are in his hands. This is the first answer to pain. But the final and absolute answer why of pain and suffering is Jesus. His sacrifice, his perfect, sinless life, laid down in obedience to the will of the Father on behalf of sinners, this is the answer to pain and suffering. For the sinner, it is nothing but the grace of God that their entire life is anything but pain and suffering. That it's not stands as a testament to his mercy, and his kindness to mankind. And for the saint, Jesus is the final answer to pain and suffering. He took all of our sin and all the pain and suffering that we deserve because of it upon himself and swallowed it up in his death. But death couldn't hold him. Death died in him. For he raised himself from the grave and lives for all eternity. In him, we have life and life more abundantly. This world, this life is merely a vapor, a mist that is fleeting. We have an eternity of life with Christ, an eternity in which we will actually live. Knowing our God much better because we've been trained in this life through pain and suffering. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Meaning that the faith that enables us to see ourselves in light of his majesty and glory is authored by him, purchased by him. And one day, when we are ushered into what he called real life, an eternity with him, we will be able to shed these eyes of faith. We'll no longer need them. At that moment, our faith will be realized. We will be home. We will see our Savior face-to-face for all eternity. And in that moment, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. Let's pray. All praise honor and glory belong to you Jesus Father thank you for calling us to you My Father I pray for any there in this room that don't know you that think of you as being mean and unkind and unjust because of pain and suffering Father I pray that through your holy spirit that you would regenerate their hearts, break through, cause them to see themselves in light of who you are, Lord, that they would be saved and finally find comfort in you. Father, I pray comfort over these, your dear saints, Lord, whom you are afflicting because of You desire good for us, Lord. Father, may we bring glory and honor to you through suffering well. That in the midst of the suffering, Father, that you would reveal your goodness and your grace to us in a deeper way. You are beyond good, Lord. Thank you again for giving us your spirit, Lord. Thank you for giving us your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.